Thank you, Steve. Y'all, took it down on my deacons, deacons yesterday. I was camping Friday night with uh, four Clemson fans, and they were expressing their fears about, yes, the game coming on Saturday, and I said, I just don't think your senior is going to lose at home. But if we win out, the division is still ours, so there's hope. Um, I have to confess, when I looked at the bulletin on Tuesday, I thought it would take us a lot longer to get to the sermon uh, than it has. So I deliberately chose a shorter passage and and may have prepared a shorter message. Um, So I've got lots of room to add in now. Uh, Or maybe we'll stick with the original plan. But uh, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, toward the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon and his first sermon recorded in the New Testament. And we'll actually begin in verse 7. I'll read verses 7, 8, and verse 9 will be our focus, the, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 to 9. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask for ears to hear, ears of the heart, to hear your word today. We ask for minds that are open to understand truths about who you are and who we are in your light. And we pray that you would be working and calling us very specifically, very individually, very particularly, as you always do, into greater love and knowledge of you who made us. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can guess, I'm not a, I'm not a Clemson Tiger fan, um, but I, I'm interested in tigers, at least sometimes. I read a couple of years ago a, a book um, by John Valiant, V-A-L-I-A-N-T, uh, called The Tiger, and it was one of these kind of page-turning investigative true stories about a man-eating Siberian tiger in far eastern Russia, I think in the very late 90s, early 2000s. And, and the author just weaves in everything from Russian history to their engagement in Afghanistan to the history and, of, and adaptation of the Siberian tiger and what was going on locally with you know, the National Park Service and why this tiger was hunting down, stalking certain people. It's a, it's a gripping it's a gripping tale. It'd make a good Christmas gift if you have any fans of tigers around here. And um, in the book, the author introduced a, a word, a term that I had never heard before, and I've been chewing on it for a couple of years now, and it has really helped me reflect on my own life, and my, my own life even in the moment. And the term was, uh, it's a German word spelled U-M-W-E-L-T, and I had been pronouncing that umwelt until I had a German speaker correct me just a couple weeks ago, so it's, it's umwelt, and umwelt is this German word that was used to describe how a creature interprets its environment. So you have two creatures that are living in the same exact environment, all the same physical stimuli available to their sight and their ears and feeling and everything else, but among the thousands of pieces of data 
that are present to them, those creatures are interpreting differently which pieces are important and which pieces are unimportant and which things are categorized as threats and which things are categorized as opportunities. And, and thus, it's informing differently their instinctual responses to their surroundings. That would be a creature's umwelt. And the, the man who introduced this term, he gave this example. A woman is walking her dog down sidewalk. What does the, the woman notice? Well, she might notice a new for sale sign where it wasn't a week ago. Uh, she might notice uh, an outdoor restaurant patio and how many people are, are sitting out there that day. She might especially notice a, a police car crossing, uh, going across the intersection a block ahead. Meanwhile, her dog notices uh, some, some crumbs of a donut on the sidewalk and maybe notices the scent that's wafting from the kitchen exhaust fan of that restaurant, as well as another dog across the street. So, so the woman and the dog are living and walking, inhabiting the exact same uh, objective reality, and yet with two very different umwelts. An example that I like to think about is imagine a Navy SEAL and a food critic go out to eat at the same restaurant. As they walk in, what does the Navy SEAL notice? Where are the exits? Who might be carrying? And scanning the menu might look at what's the most protein-packed you know, entree available tonight. Uh, the food critic, on the other hand, is noticing the, the ambiance and whether the menu has a theme and how knowledgeable the server is, right? So this idea of Umwelt, I found it very helpful thinking about what am I regarding as important and unimportant among all the things going on in life? What am I labeling as threats and opportunities? And what are my instinctual responses to things as I'm going down the sidewalk of life? And it is a good reason for us to pause and ask ourselves, you know, if, if you became a Christian in your adult life or teenage years or, or later, shouldn't there be a change in your umwelt? And what you regard as important and unimportant, maybe some of those things are switched. And what you label threats and opportunities, maybe some of those things are switched. And, and over time, your instinctual responses to your surroundings as you're walking into a store and to work, as you're scanning the news, all these things should be having some change over time as hopefully our, our umwelt is becoming more like Christ's. And one of the values of the Lord's Prayer that we're looking at just the beginning of today is I don't think there is a, a, a summary of a Christian's outlook that is more comprehensive and more succinct in all the New Testament than the Lord's Prayer. For in it, Jesus is teaching us not only how to pray, his disciples having asked him, teach us how to pray, he really is teaching us how to see. How to see the world especially with the new senses, the new instincts that we have when we become new creations in Christ. And so we turn this morning to the beginning, only the beginning, just the words of address in the Lord's Prayer with three questions of what do you see? Do you see what you should be seeing if you are in Christ? What Jesus wants you to be seeing as you are walking down the sidewalk of life? And Another way to put it, are you seeing it more and more? Is it moving from faint to bold, from cold to hot in the heat signature of your, your vision? And the first thing is this. Do you see the Father's heart? Do you see the Father's heart? In our English translations, the opening word of the Lord's Prayer is our in the original language, and it's the same in Latin. If some of you grew up Catholic and know the Pater Nostra, the first word is Father. Father. And that's unexpected. 
really. If you're coming out of the Old Testament, you can read 150 psalms, 150 prayers in the prayer book of Israel, divinely inspired. And you know how many of them begin? Father. Zero. You can read the prayers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Hannah and Daniel and Nehemiah and you won't find a single prayer that begins the way that Jesus teaches his disciples to begin their prayers. In fact, the fatherhood of God is, is rarely mentioned in the Old Testament. It's in Deuteronomy 32.6, Isaiah 63.13, a couple of places in the Psalms. It's, it's exceedingly rare. And then there's this sudden, massive change as we come to the New Testament, beginning in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus speaks about God as his Father or our Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. I counted up last night. It's about 200 times in the Gospels alone that Jesus talks about the Father. He, he speaks of the word Father far more than he speaks of the word sin, and Jesus has a lot to say about sin. But all of a sudden, there's a figure in the biblical storyline who is speaking about God and praying to God and addressing God as the Father, my Father, and teaching his disciples to begin their prayers, our Father. Why? It makes sense when you think about it. How do the people know God was the creator? They could look around and see the creation. How do they know to call on God as the deliverer? They could look around and say, we are people who've been delivered from bondage in Egypt. How do they know God was the sustainer? They could look around those 40 years in the wilderness and see they'd been upheld by God's provision of manna and their shoes had not worn out and, and they were still, still living and marching on. And so God in his plan, when did he choose to reveal the greatest revelation of all, that he is the Father, not until there entered onto the stage of history, his Son. It's in the Son that we see the Father, or even more clearly, in the Son we see the Father-Son relationship. Jesus says, he actually thanks God, thanks his Father, in Matthew eleven twenty-seven. he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And all those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The heart of the Father revealed in the life of the Son, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wants to be a major focus for us. The centrality, really, of our focus as Christians. You may know the passage in John 14, 6, uh, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And we usually underscore no one comes, emphasizing the exclusivity of Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door. By his death, he has removed the barrier to our fellowship with God, taken our sins upon his shoulders, taken them to the grave, and then been raised from the grave that we might have a life connected to his life, in his life, living before God, living with God. But that passage equally underscores not just the exclusivity of Christ, but it, it underscores the end goal of the whole Christian life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is unique to Christianity. I've mentioned how remote the fatherhood of God is in the Old Testament. Islam has 99 names for God. Not one of them is Father. In fact, there's even a, a distancing of, of God from fatherhood in, in the Quran. 
So a Muslim would never walk down the sidewalk of life as if they're walking under the, the presence and love of a Father in heaven. No, that's, 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 too, that's, that's far away from the Muslim conception of God. And it's, it's distance remote from any other religion as well. Only in Christianity, only in Christianity, do you have this, not even the existence of this notion, but the centrality of this belief that if I'm in Christ, if I am in the Son, then His Father is my Father. And so the first word of my prayer, Jesus says, should be, Father. Do you see the heart of the Father? Secondly, do you see the hand of the Father? You might say, do you see the open hand of the Father? When we think of the Father, what things should come to mind? What, what traits, what characteristics, what dispositions? As we, as we look through the Scriptures, we see that the dominant trait, one of, if not the, dominant traits of the Father is His generosity toward His children. Even in our passage today, look back at verse 8, Matthew 6, 8. Uh, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Turn down further in chapter 6 to verses 31 and 32. I lived by these passages, this verse, when I was in college trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life, and I was very anxious about it. Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The accent on generosity. And then, a little farther down, Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Again, still in the Sermon on the Mount. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, speaking of me as a dad and any other father here, if you then, who are evil, or mothers as well, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the fathers in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And his generosity, it extends, Jesus emphasizes it, it extends even beyond provision of the things that we need, food and clothing and the like. In Matthew chapter 10, he's preparing his disciples for upcoming persecution and for uh, in, in encounters with authorities where they will be prosecuted by the authorities. And how are you going to prepare for that? And Jesus says in Matthew 10 verse 19, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, so do you see this emphasis on the generosity of the Father right here in these passages nearest uh, Matthew 6, 9? It just it continues as you move throughout the Gospels and as you go into Paul's epistles and his prayers. The riches of the glory of the Father that he gives to us as he strengthens us with all power in our innermost being, Ephesians 3. This just, this is a major theme running through the New Testament. That when we think of the Father, we should think He is very, very generous to His children. Now I'm confident I can speak not only for myself, but for many of us, maybe not all of us, but for a lot of us here when I say, we are not prone to think that way about the future when we're walking down the sidewalk of life. We're not prone to see the banner of the Father's generosity over our future. Our, our kind of default is to be very alert to the prospect of scarcity. That it seems like any moment the sky could fall on us or the, or the bottom fall out from, from underneath. 
And so we're, we're on guard. We're, we're paying lots of attention to preserving our own life, our own well-being, attention that is then sapped from being able to love God and serve others and their needs. Why are we so prone to expect a sudden encounter with scarcity? I think it makes sense what the Bible has to say about us, that deep down in our quiet moments, if we allow the thought to come over us, our conscience will accuse us of the wrong we have done and of the sin not only in our actions and our thoughts but in our very hearts. And we know deep down in our quiet moments that the prospect of scarcity is what we deserve. I'll confess to you, I've I'll come down here and preach several times at Clemson Prez. I, I fill in different places here and there. I still have the experience every Sunday morning when I'm filling and preaching somewhere that this is going to be the day that I'm halfway through the sermon and I lose my train of thought and I never regain it and it's going to be awful. Every, why? Why do I have that thought every Sunday morning? I know most people who do any kind of public speaking can relate. I'll tell you Why? Because I know it's what I deserve. That and far worse. I know it. And so something in my psychology instinctively expects that this could be the day that A, B, C, D fall upon me. And in your way, you also face the future with the same dread. The dread of getting what you deserve. But the gospel of Jesus Christ hangs a whole new banner over the sky in our lives. And, and this, this gospel is connected to the Father's generosity so beautifully in one verse in the middle of, of Paul's epistles to the Romans, in Romans 8.32, where Paul writes of the Father, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? If God has given his son, if he's gone to that length for us, if he's extended that depth of generosity to us, what Paul is saying is, it's just not in him to withhold from his children what they need. And we should have that confidence in his generosity as we're interpreting all of our surroundings and picking out the important from the unimportant, and labeling the threats and opportunities, all of it should be under the banner of, I see the Father's heart, and more and more I see the Father's open hand. Do you see the Father's heart? And do you see the Father's open hand? Our Father. And then lastly, do you see his overwhelming power? Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven. What does he want us to be attending to, alert to, when we pray to our Father in heaven? Heaven is juxtaposed with, with many things in the Bible. It's in some places juxtaposed with evil as the, the realm that is pure against the realm that is impure. It's sometimes uh, juxtaposed with flesh and blood as the, the realm that is spiritual as opposed to the realm that is, is physical and natural. But for our purposes here, I think what we're supposed to be most alert to is the immensity of heaven compared to the littleness of earth in terms of size and in terms of power. 
Isaiah 66.1 says, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Think about that. The throne is bigger than the footstool, but also think symbolically that the throne is a symbol of the exercise of power and the footstool is the symbol of the one on whom this power is exercised. The throne and the footstool. And the throne is bigger and more expensive and more magnificent. When uh, Solomon built the temple in his, during his reign, and it was completed, and he prayed a long prayer of dedication that's recorded in 1 Kings 8. He wanted to remind the people, this temple can't contain the God that we worship. We don't believe what the Philistines believe, that their, their God Dagon is in their temple, not ours. He's, he's given us a temple to build, but there's no image in it, there's no idol in it, and, and it couldn't contain him anyway, and this is how he describes it in his prayer. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. The argument from the greater, highest heaven and heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Do you know what every news station and news website has in common? I tend to make the circuit every day, so... No particular order. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Drudge Report, BBC, and Wall Street Journal. Just to like see how different people are talking about different things. And it's so often amazing how the titles are like completely opposite. You know, this thing happened today and it's great. The other website, this thing happened today and it's horrible, right? But what they all have in common is that they're trying to signal to you the world is a big, scary place and there are human powers that can control the whole thing if you're not careful, for better or for worse. This potential candidate, that rising country, this big company, this behind-the-scenes cabal, might be getting their hands on the reins of the universe, and you need to know it. That's what they're all saying. And Jesus wants us, when we pray, to remember how absurd that is when we pray to a Father in heaven. If I could give an analogy of how, how to compare in our minds God to heaven to earth in terms of size and power, I don't think I'm exaggerating if I put it this way. Let's imagine that this uh, sanctuary that we're gathering this morning is heaven. I don't know how many thousand cubic feet are in or in this sanctuary. But let's imagine that this is the scaled-down version of heaven. Solomon says, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How, how big then should we think that God is? Well, he's the infinite God. Heaven is finite. But it would be like this. If all of this is heaven and the highest heavens, then God, we need to walk out the door and go beyond our cars and beyond the borders of South Carolina and beyond the borders of our country. We need to ascend beyond the earth, keep going beyond our, our galaxy, to the, to the expanding borders of our universe with its estimated 200 billion galaxies today. And that would be just a, an analogy of how much bigger the Father in heaven is with the Son and the Holy Spirit, our triune God is, than the heavens that he's created. How big then is earth? I don't think this is an exaggeration to say if God is as big as our universe with its 200 billion galaxies and heaven is as big as the sanctuary that we're in this morning, earth is about as big as, I think this is called a foam ball on a microphone. 
And he is not intimidated by what's happening here. Now, just because it's small doesn't mean it's not precious to him. Ask any, any married woman who's got a diamond in her ring. Is that little stone precious to you? Yes, it's very precious. It's very important. And this world that God has created with us in it is very precious to him. He designed it. He created it. He made us in his image. But compared to his immensity and his power and his sovereignty, it's a very little thing. And all of us are very little people. Isaiah 40, says of the Lord, He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent for us to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. <laughs> makes you marvel that he would become one of us, that he'd send his son to become a human being to live on this earth with us. It makes you marvel that he'd promise to one day renew a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But what Jesus wants us to know is when we're walking down the sidewalk of life and we see what looks like a threat, what looks like something big and scary, to remember we have a Father's heart open to us, we have His hand open to us, and His overwhelming power is at work in His little earth. In 1620, there was a a major battle in Europe. The Thirty Years' War was just getting underway, and in hindsight, historians consider this perhaps the most important and decisive battle in the Thirty Years' War. It took place outside of Prague, and it was called the Battle of White Mountain. And it's 1620, so it's about 100 years after the, after the Protestant Reformation has begun, and the Protestant Reformation has had kind of reached a peak and is beginning, it's beginning to wane. People are beginning to wonder, has the Protestant Reformation kind of, is it nearing its sunset in Europe? Uh, the various Catholic states and Catholic princes and powers with the Pope were beginning to really regain their strength. And what you had in the Battle of White Mountain was two armies facing off. And it's, it's, of course, a tragedy when religion and politics get this mixed. But you had a Catholic army that was loyal to the Habsburgs, overseeing and ruling over that area. And you had a, a union of Protestants in the Protestant army. And what was at stake here was going to be the freedom of the Protestant religion in that part of the world. The Battle of White Mountain lasted two hours because the Protestants were just decimated that quickly. It wasn't even close. And on the heels of their loss, Protestant, Protestantism was made illegal in, in Bohemia and that area of the world. And the news of this battle spread throughout Europe and it just cast a shadow over the hearts of Protestants throughout Europe and it sent waves of celebration throughout the, the Catholic Church. There was actually a celebration parade, a victory parade in Rome not long after, and, and Pope, uh, Pope Paul V, who was leading it, actually died in the middle of that victory parade. His successor, Pope Gregory XV, then named a, a new basilica in Rome after that victory. I think it's called the uh, Mary of the Victory, the basilica. Huge deal. If you ask someone in 1620, what's the biggest thing that's happened in Europe recently? What's the biggest thing that's happened with the Christian faith recently? They would tell you the Battle of White Mountain. The Battle of White Mountain lasted two hours on November the 8th, 1620. What no one knew, maybe, maybe someone knew, but un unlikely that anyone at that battle knew, was that at that very same time there was a, a ship of people who had set sail from the Netherlands after having left England some years before. They'd been at sea for about two months. 
And they carried with them wives, children, their possessions, and the hopes of dreams of living out their faith in an unhindered way, forming a society where the Scripture was the rule and God would be glorified and they could become a light on a hill. And on the morning of November the 9th, the people on the Mayflower first spotted land. They saw Cape Cod in the New World. And two days later, on November the 11th, they landed. And in the weeks that followed, founded the Plymouth Rock Colony. And you know, it's interesting this week, throughout our country, people are remembering and in various degrees celebrating the pilgrims. And throughout the world, anyone who studies Western history knows their names because of the major impact they had on Christianity for centuries to come. But you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who remembers, much less anyone who is celebrating the Battle of White Mountain the day before. Our Father in Heaven is always one step ahead of whatever we are paying attention to here on Earth. The rulers of this world are playing little games of checkers. He is always playing a grand game of chess. And he's doing it for his own glory and for the good of his people and for the glory of his son whom he gave for us, for our sins, that we might have life with him. Do you see his overwhelming power right now? Is that a part of your umwelt as you're walking out to your car and going home and going into your week on Monday? If you do, praise God, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to know him like that and see him like that. And it's all the achievement of Jesus Christ, who in his great love for us went to such great lengths as to lay down his life for us that we could have every barrier to fellowship with God removed and that we could have security knowing that his overwhelming power, he's stewarding it for our good. But don't lose sight of the fact also that the one who has this overwhelming power has an open hand toward us. He's generous. He's beneficent. He's kind to his children. And even more than that, his heart is open to us. The heart of our God is the heart of the Father of Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, he is our Father as well. There are many passages in Scripture that would describe the ultimate purpose for which Jesus came and lived and died and was raised from the dead. But one of them that may capture it most magnificently is 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we are. And so we pray, our Father in heaven. And so we look at life through that lens and interpret our surroundings and what comes our way with that great confidence. We are those who by grace get to walk through life, down the sidewalk of life, picking up on everything else around us but interpreting it through this wonderful truth that we have a Father in heaven and his love and his generosity and his power are all determinative in what will happen to us while we live here in this little life on earth. I don't know what that does for your heart this morning, but I hope it's an encouragement to your heart. And perhaps there's no better line with which to end than one that Sinclair Ferguson, when he preaches, often ends with this. And it's just a rhetorical question. 
But we think about the alternatives. What other ways of looking at life? What other ways of looking at the future? What other ways of understanding who you are and where you come, came from and why you're here? And then you look at what Jesus has to say about what he has done for us and the life he's given us that we could know a heavenly father and be called children of God and say, and so we are. Sinclair Ferguson just closes by asking, isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a Christian? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for loving us as you have through Christ. We thank you for your word that declares these things that are true to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit by whom we can know and receive and understand these truths. And we pray that your spirit be working in each of our minds and hearts this afternoon and the days ahead to give us a heart that knows you as you are and trusts you and lives for you and in the confidence of living with and under you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.